You won't believe the book of Acts. You won't. Read it. <laughs> You're going to find something. You're like, I, I don't know. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't work. It's not like that anymore. You won't believe the book of Acts. I think my favorite quote from this week, the whole book. Ready? It's not going to sound like a Bible quote. That's why it's awesome. Rise. Kill. Eat. Bible verse, it's pretty good. It's actually about grace too. It's the vision that Peter had in which he learned that non-Jews can be saved. And the eating was merely a parable, a picture of becoming flesh and blood relations with those of a different tribe. Via the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ, high priest of Melchizedek, who supersedes our own bloodline. That's what that rise, kill, eat was about for Peter. It's about grace for us. The book of Acts is about how that grace in the word of Jesus Christ cannot be bound. And no human attempt to bind this spirit of the holy God will succeed, even though many will try. So if I had to summarize the purpose of the book of Acts, I'd say it's this. It's to teach you that the point of Christianity is the freeing of people under the power of the devil. Hmm? Christianity frees you from the power of the devil, even though you will be opposed by the devil's children, humans, who also happen to therefore be, devil's children, enemies of God and spewers of hate. That's another Bible verse right there, by the way. You are an enemy of God and a spewer of hate. One of the apostles said that to a sorcerer. Chapter 13, verses 6 through 12. If you're going to take one story home just to shock yourself with this week, Acts 13, 6 through 12, go read it. Go read it. It's, it's pretty cool to see the confidence of we, the kingdom of Jesus Christ. To see that we know it's the end of them and the beginning of us, followers of the way of Jesus Christ. And don't miss that when I say them, I often want you to put that in scare quotes. And no, I'm not talking about humans at all. The unleashing of us from the devil is the end of their reign over us. And I very much am talking about the demons. The demons. It's the end of them and the beginning of us. Let's see if I can tell you the story. Nah. It all starts after the resurrection. Jesus has been appearing to people for some time, but he calls his apostles to a mountaintop in Galilee with some parting words. He ascends to the highest heaven where he leaves them knowing he's taking charge of all things and he's promised them a special gift something unique to them, something different than the Old Testament church. And this special gift is a dispensation of the Holy Spirit, unlike that given to the New Testament church. This will show up in the book in, in chapter two, and I'll touch on it when we get there, okay? But they know this promise is coming. In the meantime, an angel shows up and says, why are you staring at the sky, you fools? He's gonna be a gone a while. He'll come back, but go do something else. They end up going back to Jerusalem from there. And as they pray together, they're praying the Psalms daily and they're going to the temple and participating in the worship there, trying to convince people that Jesus is risen from the dead. Um, as this is happening, there's a side story where 
they realized that the prophets of old said there would be 12 apostles and now there's only 11. And so they decide to put someone else in that office. You can check out that story. It's mostly in chapter one. After that happens, they're still then waiting in Jerusalem for the promise from on high that God said he would send. And you know this story, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. Yeah, but Pentecost, we do it every year. We hear Peter's sermon preached over two Sundays every year. The Holy Spirit descends upon these men. He makes them to have the supernatural powers that God had promised them to be able to speak as a sign against the Jews that their covenant was over and that the new covenant in Christ's blood had begun. Let me reemphasize that. The miracles in Acts are a sign that Judaism is over. That's why if you still practice Judaism, you missed your own ark, literally. Uh, uh, Pentecost, many Jews being preached to by Jews believed in Jesus. Uh, it's an amazing day. Thousands are added to the number. They're baptized. They begin to live together. They begin to share things with each other. I'm going to scoop ahead here a little bit in my, my outline. Would you believe I'm going to use the comic book for the outline this morning? Uh, this comic book is amazing, by the way. Following this amazing day where they have the Spirit upon them and where Peter says this coming upon us is the fulfillment of Joel chapter 2 which says specifically that the sons and daughters of every person who's a believer will be prophets. He says, that's what this new spirit is and what it means. And they begin to gather every day to do what? To study the scriptures. Because what is known in the New Testament era is that God wants all his people to know his word, not just the priests. This is a religion for you, not just for me up here. And so in that, The spirit is given in the simplicity of trust that you are baptized into Jesus and therefore the Bible's your holy book. It's your story about the history of reality that will itself supersede and outlast every other story that's being told in this crazy world today. Again, to demonstrate this in real time, God gave these guys special gifts. So what happens shortly after this is that Peter is going up to the temple to pray and he sees a beggar. And the beggar says, can I have some money? Because that's what beggars say. By the way, we don't like to give them money at St. Paul. We like to give them those homeless packets with the cans of sardines and the Sons of Solomon packets and the socks. Pick up one of those on your way out to help the people that are poor this week. But what Peter says to this particular beggar is, um, I don't got any sardines in the can, right? I don't have any gold or silver, but I got this. Get up. Guy gets up. He can walk now. He was lame. He is able to walk. He is free. This turns into a real problem. There's a big commotion about this. Peter is surrounded and asked to preach effectively. He has to defend why and how he did it. This will lead to a cascade of problems in which before both the crowds and then the Sanhedrin and then also the Roman government, Peter is being accused of being a disruptor of the peace. The idea is that The government, the Jews, are trying to have a nice, easy, peaceful life. And these words that Peter keeps saying about this man, Jesus, it's turning everything upside down. It's changing the way we live. It's making it different than we want to be. And honestly, I can understand not liking, not wanting to have the way I live changed by somebody else. So so I get that. But what was really happening here? is that the leadership factor of this people were seeing that in Jesus Christ, they no longer had power or money. 
that the source of their power and money, which was the temple, was going to go away. And so they would just have to be Christians like everybody else. And some of them couldn't do it. There were some who did. You know, there are people amongst the Sanhedrin that argued on behalf of Jesus. Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, and potentially others. Even Gamaliel says, leave the movement alone. Yeah. Um, but they don't. So in each of these moments where you have Peter standing up to give a confession of what he believes, which every time ends with the resurrection of Jesus Christ being something he just can't do nothing about. Like, you want to tell me to lie about it? I can't. It happens, right? Uh, they keep saying to him, well, just don't say it anymore. They scourge him, some of the others. They end up putting him in prison. Every time, here's his response. And for all the stories, what I want you to get out of this is the test of idolatry. It's the test of idolatry. It's the dark powers that were at work. When Peter is brought first before a crowd, then before a jury of his peers, then given by them to a jury of his enemies, he has to decide whether or not he's going to say Jesus is risen or whether he's going to do like those soldiers who saw the angel at the tomb who took the money to say he's not risen. Remember that one from the end of the book of Luke. Yeah. So what does he do? He fights idolatry with prayer. Uh, one of the most fun stories in the entire book is when he is freed from prison. This will come back to Paul in an echo as well. But he's in prison now because he won't stop speaking this. They let him go. He says it more. They arrest him again. They put him in chains between guards. Uh, if you know the Amy Grant song, you know, somebody testify. Uh, Angels watching over me in the middle of the night with chained between these two guards. Guards outside his door. He hears a voice. Wake up. Okay. Get up. Fast. Move. Okay. Chains fall off, the door opens, everyone's sleeping. He walks right on out, and the doors are shut again. He ends up at a house of Christians that night where the door, you remember this story, the girl who hears him at the door, doesn't even open the door. <laughs> she leaves him at the door and goes, tells everybody. Um, he ends up leaving town after this, by the way. So when he escapes, he doesn't go preach again. He leaves town, and that story is going to go on. But back to being in the jail for a moment. What's your plan? What's your plan if you're ever in a moment where it's that bad? Have you memorized anything to pray? Right. That's why I want you to read Psalm 23 and Psalm 1 this year. Every day you do it, you'll be praying them when you're in jail, if you're in jail. It'll just start to come out and you'll be really glad you memorized them. Yeah. Uh, my big kick on the Psalms this year wasn't started by this, but I heard this story and, and it really did um, inspire me to push harder on my own. Uh, and that was a story of a man who, uh, an American citizen, former USSR, that's not just Russia, but Soviet citizen, who had spent time in a gulag in Siberia for being a Christian underneath the communist oppression of Christianity, which is a very real thing. It happens in every communist government. Don't let the people on TV tell you it won't happen here. Every communist government ever has done it. Um, so he, he's in prison. Um, he did not have this at the time, but after he got out, he memorized the Psalter in case he ever had to go back. And you know what? It doesn't matter if he ever has to go back. The blessings every day for that man. The blessings every day for that man. He learned the value of the prayers of Jesus Christ in the midst of suffering. And so here it is. Peter is saved. Why? Because again, he has more to do for God. This becomes a major, major way you can fight your fear of death with the book of Acts. It's very clear God's in charge of death. If people try to kill people and God doesn't want it, 
it gets fixed. If people try to escape some kind of punishment, God sends it after them. You really cannot decide when you are going to give your life as a member of the kingdom. But what you can know is that every step of the way, God will bring you a better day tomorrow. Because that real kingdom coming in his resurrected return is enough to take every single what jail cell in this life and know that it won't last forever. It can't last forever. So in any case, they escape. He ends up leaving the area. And in the meantime, there's so much work going on in the congregation that is growing and still using the temple that the apostles themselves are running out of the ability to even speak or teach. And since that's what the whole thing's supposed to be about, them teaching what the Old Testament means about Jesus, they decide to get some other people to help them deliver the goods. Because along with the teaching, there was offering taking place. And from the offering, the poorest people in the community were being fed. They were mainly widows. At that time, there was no such thing as a bank account for most people. So this was highly necessary, but it was distracting from the work the apostles were doing. And so they put together seven men, the whole group affirms it, to go and do this work. They pray for them and they send them. But what happens next is you don't hear about them doing that work. You hear Stephen preaching. So up to this point, again, the story has been about this guy, Peter, who denied Jesus three times. You remember that? Who's the big spokesman of the apostles, but never quite seemed to get it. He always puts his foot in his mouth. That's all changed. He is a humbled, serious servant of the risen king. And no matter what gets thrown at him, he just says, look, look, I'm just here to say what I've been given to say. And he keeps going forward. Saul of Tarsus is a different character altogether. This is the guy who's going to become Paul. And at this point, he is being made a leader among the Sanhedrin as a sort of like local thug local police action, right? Defund the police and put it into social work. That's Saul of Tarsus right now for the Sanhedrin. It's literally the kind of idea, right? A personal guard as opposed to, say, the public guard. In any case, he's given this power to begin rooting out this concept they call the way. And they're not calling it Christianity. They just call it the way. And what's meant by the way is that the way the Old Testament says you should walk on is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, right? That Jesus of Nazareth is the fulfillment of the way, the truth, the life. But Saul of Tarsus can't stand the way. He hates the way. The way is going to destroy everything he cares about. And so he's willing to shed blood to get this thing dealt with because he believes that's what God's word says to do. He actually thinks the Old Testament says you're supposed to kill people. Now, there was a time for that. They had an Ark of the Covenant at that time. And since that time, You just can't do any of it. It just doesn't work, right? The Wailing Wall is a good thing if you're pious, I suppose, but it's still not going to work. That temple got destroyed on purpose by Jesus from heaven. It's not coming back. So in any case, Saul can't see that yet. The temple's not destroyed, even though the ark's gone. But what he wants to do is bring about a perfect keeping of the Old Testament law so that the Jews will rise to prominency on the earth. That's his religion. And he sees Christianity destroying that very early. And so he begins to go out with authority to try to find out where the ringleaders of this way movement are and get them arrested, get out of town, all that kind of thing. The first person who falls victim to this again is this guy, Stephen, one of these seven men anointed to just help with the food distribution, 
think even your board of elders a little bit is kind of like that. That's the idea. Um, and uh, he gets arrested. He gets pulled into the Sanhedrin, Sanhedrin. He gets put on trial the same way that Jesus had. He gives a very long sermon, all of chapter seven. It, it recounts like the whole Old Testament before he turns on a dime to say, but you all won't believe it. So that's why you won't believe it. And that's why you're going to be condemned. At which point they kill him. They just kill him in cold blood. They throw rocks at his face until he dies. While he's doing that, he continues to pray for them. And he prays specifically that they would be forgiven of their sins and welcomed into eternal life by Jesus. You might remember that's also what Jesus prayed when he died. So he dies. Now remember, this is the early Christian church where beggars are getting healed. Yeah. Uh, where the apostles have authority to cast out demons and do all this kind of stuff. And then suddenly there's one of us dead in the middle of it all. It went from being, we seem to be winning to, whoa. And suddenly things start to shift a bit. There's, there's something else that happens in the community. There's liars in the Christian community. There are people who say, we believe everything y'all believe. We want what you're getting. But then they keep for themselves their own idols frankly. And the result of that's quite terrifying. Um, Ananias and Sapphira are the name of these two people. Um, and they end up dead. They end up dead by the Holy Spirit in front of everybody at church. So between that and the persecution of Stephen, suddenly everyone's a little more not so sure about joining this, this Christian thing. Uh, and in fact, you will see that uh, many will leave the city at this time. We've talked about that in this last year, how that happens. Okay, so let me uh, skip ahead here past the end of Stephen and see what happens next. Um, as the people are driven out from Jerusalem, they don't stop being Christians. So wherever they go, the word of God ends up spreading through all of this. You have some stories about another guy like Stephen, whose name is Philip, who will end up baptizing an Ethiopian man in a river and a bunch of other things like that. Um, you can find that story in chapter eight, if you would like to read that this week. Um, after that, though, what we really want to see is that Christianity doesn't just go like out into Judea from Jerusalem. It's spiderwebs. It begins going out throughout the entire world. And this Ethiopian eunuch is one of the main examples of that. Here's Philip, who's not a pastor, probably. Maybe, what's the pastor? We can debate it. Here's Philip. He's not an apostle. He runs into this guy on the road. The Holy Spirit says, talk to him. The guy has a copy of Isaiah. That's it, just Isaiah. From talking about Isaiah, they get to baptism. I don't know how that one happened, but it got there. Then he baptizes him and he says, now you go back to Ethiopia with your copy of Isaiah. I'm gonna go this way. And wait a minute. No confirmation, no Lord's Supper, didn't join a church. What's going on? We have this trouble as Lutherans where we understand the way it's supposed to be so well that we can't often handle what is. <laughs> um, the Ethiopian eunuch is an example of the word just going on its own ahead of the church. So whenever the apostles go somewhere, guess what they find? Here and there, ready Christians, groups that are already in existence, people who need help. A guy from Egypt named Apollos who knows Jesus and preaches him, but has never been instructed. 
who ends up serving as a major apostle in the early church. There's so much chaos going on, by the way, in all this. There's no order. There's no hierarchy or chain of command. This is, this is just, they're living day to day. But it's also kind of glorious. The word of God spreads. Light pierces the darkness. And again, people's lives are changing. Don't miss this. This is not just about how Jesus is an idea that we all have to believe in because it's right. This is not about that. This is about how the devil's real, has actual tactics and lies he uses. Jesus has stopped it once and for all and contains within himself the wisdom and the Holy Spiritual power to retain your mind in the midst of all that madness and stand looking for the more glorious day, certain that it will come. Which makes you, again, well, like a rock built strong, like a tree by streams of water, you're ready to stand. Unlike this guy, Saul. So Saul, by chapter what nine, is uh, um, he's got all the Christians out of Jerusalem except for James the Just and maybe a couple others. Everyone's left, but they also know that well, they get everybody, and word is coming that there are converts to Christianity in other areas around. And so what he wants to do is go find these same leaders. And he believes they'll go to the most natural place to go next, which is Damascus. It's the biggest port city in the area. It's, it's kind of the capital of the region of sorts. Almost still is today, except for the government fell apart. And maybe you saw the explosion last year. Oh, my goodness. Anyway, um, a, a nuclear, was it nuclear power, power plant exploded because the government had been collapsed for a year and a half. And oh, terrifying stuff. Anyway, center of the ancient world, trade city megaopolis if there ever was one why wouldn't they go there first and there there are christians there so saul goes there with letters to be able to arrest anybody who finds who's in the synagogue right they say i'm a jew and a christian he's going to arrest them and this is where you've heard this story before he finds something quite unexpected a light from heaven meets him in the road throws him to the ground blinds him and speaks to him all those with him see the light hear noise, no voice. Voice says, why are you persecuting me, Saul? Notice how Jesus sees the persecution of his church as the persecution of him. And Saul goes, I don't even know who you are, God. Who are you? And after that, he's taken into the city blind. Where? Can you catch the echo? Three days, three nights, no food, no water. Sound like another story? Sort of. Death, resurrection, in darkness the whole time. There's a guy across town named Ananias, and he gets a vision from Jesus. What do we do with visions from Jesus? Are they still here? I don't get them. And if you tell me you do, I'll test you with the Bible, and we'll see how well you do. Yeah, Like, when you say Jesus said this, I'm going to say, well, the Bible says this, and then we'll know Jesus didn't say it, right? So that's the problem is if prophecy is still here, I don't think it is. If prophecy is still here, then we have to write it down and all obey it. God doesn't give prophecies just for you and like what shirt you're gonna wear today. That's not how it works, right? He gives prophecies for the entire church. And at this point, he reaches out to this single guy, Ananias, and he says to them, there's a guy named Saul of Tarsus over on Straight Street. You need to go to him because he's praying. Thomas, what is he praying? Is it from the heart, oh Jesus, I love you? No. He's praying the Psalms. In fact, it'll say that later. He's in the Psalms. What does he know in the darkness with nothing else to say? Words that can't fail as prayers. 
And Jesus hears. And after three days, three nights, he sends this guy, Ananias, who will baptize Paul. Paul has the scales fall from his eyes. Remember that. Uh, and then he eats food and he immediately starts to preach. He goes to the synagogues and starts teaching about Jesus. Causes such a ruckus, such a ruckus that they chase him out of town. The same people who are like waiting for him for help. Within a couple of weeks, plan to kill him. They're going to kill him. <laughs> That's how, how annoying he is. Do you remember how then he goes to a, a wall and there's a window and he escapes the city through the, the, the basket in the window? The story from there will shift on again away from Paul. And what's tough to notice in Acts, you're at like between chapter 10, 11, and 12 here. Yeah, 9, 9 10, 11. Um, like three and a half years are going to go by. Everything's been kind of in time for a while, months at least, right? But now for Paul, in the pages, you're going to have a little tiny blip. And it's, it's three and a half years. He goes to Arabia, which is like far away with money. I don't know. With who? We don't know. He just goes there, studies the scriptures. Three years. He's gone three years again. In the meantime, he causes a bit of a disruption. No one knows if they can trust him. Back at Jerusalem, which he does visit briefly, he gets to meet some of the apostles. But now focus comes back on Peter for a second, right? We have Paul's conversion. He'll be the back end story. But Peter, our great preacher, is still moving around here. And we have, um, uh, I'm trying to figure out how he got to where he is in this picture. This is where an outline would be better than a picture. Chalk it up to fail number one for comic book as outline. Um, yeah, he gets to Lydda. So remember, he's had to leave Jerusalem because he's got a mark on him. And he ends up in the northwest, kind of by the sea, at a place called Lydda. At which point, he gets a message from a town called Joppa further up that someone is there, a Christian, whose daughter has died. Her name is Tabitha. And again, she died. And they know that Peter's nearby. They know Peter's been given these gifts. They ask, can you come raise Tabitha? Now, why didn't anyone raise Stephen? Again, I don't think I have an answer. I want you to see that God decides when. So God kills Tabitha. Why? It's actually to get Peter to Joppa because that's how the centurions people are going to find him. It's kind of like everything about this. God says to Joseph, being an angel, you're going to have a guy named Jesus as your son. He's not really your son, but you're going to raise him anyway. He could have said, let me give you some heads up. Go down to Bethlehem, get a room. But he didn't. He had Caesar institute a census instead to get them to Bethlehem in time to have all that stuff happen. Yeah. So, so God, God is always the one doing it. He just sometimes decides to do it in ways we don't understand. Tabitha, he kills the daughter. Ah, my daughter's dead. Someone help. He raises the daughter. That's great. But not everybody gets this. But now he's there in Joppa where knock, 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 there are messengers from a guy named Cornelius up across town who's a centurion. That means he's a leading soldier. He's got a lot of money. He controls a lot of things. And he says, I've had a vision. What do we do with visions? I don't know. I've had a vision saying, ask for Peter. Notice how God didn't give him a vision saying, believe in Jesus, find the Bible, be saved. No. He said, ask for the apostle. God still works through these specific men. And that's why our New Testament is the words we keep and cherish so deeply. Peter also has had a dream in the meantime on the roof of this house where he's staying. The dream happens three times, which just remember, 
How many times did Peter deny Jesus? Three. How many times did Jesus restore and forgive Peter? John 20. Three, right? And now three times Peter is for everybody else too. (laughs) And the way this works out is there's this big blanket that drops down and it's got all these animals that he would think are disgusting to eat, like bacon, right? Pigs. Um, But other things, uh, the comic book has a zebra and a hippo and a snake and a lion. Um, uh, So he sees all of this and he knows from the Old Testament that as a Jew, this is not what he's supposed to do. And even though he knows he's saved by grace, he still thinks these things are disgusting. They're just gross to him, right? Ew. You know what it's like to have kids who don't want to eat the food. Um, And God says, no, this is clean now. It's clean. I've declared it clean. Peter will later make it clear. This isn't about the food, although Jesus in Mark does declare all foods clean ritually. Doesn't mean they're all healthy, (laughs) Uh, but they're all ritually clean. Um, Peter will say, this is not about food. This is about the church being for all people, that all people have been cleaned. And he's not allowed to look at someone and say, that person is too gross. That person is not good enough. I've been pondering this. This is an aside here for a second. Um, I've been pondering this with regard to our helping the homeless via the the goodwill packets that we give out. And I've heard from among us, and it doesn't surprise me because it's pretty common amongst all people, um, that we shouldn't help these people because they deserve what they have got. And initially, part of me wants to make an argument like, no, they don't. But actually, the more I ponder it, that's exactly why we're supposed to help them. What does the good king do? The bad king gets vengeance on everything. The good king cares for those who can't care for themselves, even though they ought to. That's called mercy, right? So what Peter again learns is that God desires mercy, not sacrifice. And so he goes with these people to Cornelius' house. And Cornelius, again, a wealthy man, uh, he brings his whole family, all the people he employs, everybody he knows comes and listens. And we're told at the end, they're all baptized. He and all his household, the modern person who doesn't want households to include babies for baptism will always quibble at that point. But the point is, this man converts and everyone he knows comes with him. It's just an amazing, amazing moment. Then the Holy Spirit falls on them and they speak in foreign languages the same way they did on the day of Pentecost. I haven't mentioned tongues very specifically yet. Take this to the bank, please. The tongues in the Bible are always real human languages that somebody else would be able to understand if they spoke that language. They are never a babbling made-up language that nobody knows but you and God. You're all like, Pastor... Why are you telling us that? And I'm going to be like, because most of Christianity thinks the second one. That's why. Uh, Tongues are when the Holy Spirit makes you say Jesus is risen in a language you don't know. Now, if you want to flip this on the spiritual warfare thing, this is important too. Do you know who else has the power to cause the speaking of tongues? And those who study demonology, you know what sometimes happens with, an, with a, um, a person who is actually possessed? If you try to talk with them, I don't recommend it. But if you did, you know what sometimes they do? Speak in Latin. Like they know it. Because the demon does. Not quite speaking in tongues, but notice how the human can be a conduit. All right? The question is, with the demon, it's possessed. You're controlled. With the Holy Spirit, you are enlivened. You are inspired. And there's a massive difference between those two things. Oppressed versus inspired. So, they convert. 
They get the Holy Spirit. Um, in the meantime, uh, Peter does. Oh, see, I got ahead of myself. The the, uh, the story. Uh, I hate it when I do this. Um, the story about angels helping Peter escape from jail happens next, not before, before they were beaten and released. So I can't fix that in real time. Go back, edit the video. We'll just go on from here. Peter escapes from this prison now in Joppa, yeah, uh, and goes to the people there and says, I've got to get out of Joppa as well. There's an interlude about Herod the king that we won't spend time on, but the story will really shift here out of Peter's life. And that's where I should have remembered this when I was talking about Peter in prison, three days, three nights, death, resurrection, because it's the end of his story, just like Jesus. He does everything he does, then he dies, rises, and vanishes. And he vanishes. He leaves Joppa in the middle of the night. No one knows where he's going. Upper room. They met in an upper room. He finds him in the upper room. Does it sound familiar? He lives Jesus' life. And then Paul will have another version of this himself. And that is where this, the, the focus shifts. So in chapter 13, you have Paul and Barnabas going with a guy named John Mark to Cyprus. Paul has spent that time in Arabia. He has come back to Jerusalem and attempted to teach there, but they sent him away. Again, remember, this is like the three-year thing. They send him away because wherever Paul goes, guess what follows him? Trouble. <laughs> Fights. Yeah. So they say, why don't you just go home? Back to Tarsus. So he does. He goes back to Tarsus where we learn, I think, later he has a sister. Um, in any case, uh, fact check me on that one. Um, he goes to Tarsus Barnabas is sent by Jerusalem to Antioch, which is a foreign city with Gentile Christians, in order to teach them because there's no apostolic presence there. When Barnabas goes there, he grabs Paul to take him. Hmm? So it's thanks to Barnabas that we get Paul in Antioch, where he does teach for a while. Since they're all Greeks and not Jews, they're not mad at him. Right? The problem Paul has is he talks to Pharisees and they don't like it. <laughs> when he talks to Greeks, they, they don't mind so much. Yeah, um, And so that's going on. Then a, an interesting event happens. They're praying as a congregation. The leading men, which I would contend again means searching the Psalter at home and together. And then they're also fasting. They're not eating. And when they're doing this, they receive together a voice from heaven. Again, I don't think we should try this to expect a voice from heaven today, although the model of prayer and fasting is, is time-tested. Um, but the voice from heaven says, set apart Barnabas and Saul, Paul, to be my apostles. And off they go. All right. So from here, the rest of the story is going to be inside of something called three missionary journeys, the three missionary journeys of Paul. He's going to go out and come back, go out and come back, go out and not come back. All right. This first journey is small. Again, they go to Cyprus, which is an island. They end up on the main coast of Asia Minor and go inland. They do have some success as they go. Again, chapter 13, they try talking to this guy, uh, the proconsul in Cyprus. He's the, the Roman governor there. And they're confronted by a man named um, Elimas. Sergius Paulus, the proconsul, is, as his counselor, has a man named Elimas. And this is a sorcerer. If you like J.R.R. Tolkien, Lord of the Rings, just think worm tongue, and you have the whole thing right there. Um, so this is where Paul calls this guy a child of the devil, an enemy of what's right, 
full of deceit. And he strikes him blind, right? Um, but in terms of preaching, in terms of uh, Christian growth, we don't see that until they reach Antioch, Pisidia. This is far up into the inland. Um, it's far away from home for all of them, but they are received there and they are welcomed there. Um, following that, they end up making their way back to Jerusalem. So the, the major event is they get to Antioch, Pisidia. They convert people. They start making their way back though, because, sorry, I should have said this one in. Um, in Antioch, Pisidia, things go well for a while and then things go less well for a while less well for a while. And so they leave to escape what's going on that's less well. And on their way back to Jerusalem, long trip, they end up in Lystra. Don't need to know where that is, but there, hey, does this sound like what Peter did? They run into a beggar who can't walk. Guess what he does? Makes him able to walk. Guess what happens? No one likes it. It's the same story. Same story all over again, although they like it first. First, they try to offer sacrifices to Paul as Hermes, with Barnabas being Zeus. Then, when they don't do that, they end up, well, killing Paul. So, I mean, what a morning. There's one more piece of the story. The town they just left right before this, I don't remember it off the top of my head, they are afraid of being killed there. Like, the potential of Paul getting stoned is in this one town. So, in the middle of the night, they go to a different town, he heals a guy, gets killed anyway, rises from the dead, and goes on to a different town. I mean, that's a Monday, right? Like, that's a real Monday, all the way through it. Yeah? On, don't miss, his journey now ends with a death and a resurrection. A death and a resurrection, just like Peter's, okay? He ends up back in Jerusalem. Uh, they report everything that happened, that Acts 15, we already talked about this morning enough, right? From there, you have the second journey. This is kind of the big one that plants everything. This is where he goes up to Antioch, uh, to Ephesus, to Corinth, to Thessalonica, to Philippi. And the way this story starts off is they go to visit all the churches they'd already been to in Asia Minor, but they have a dream. He gets one of these other dreams. Go do something. Do you remember this one? Right? A man from Macedonia. That's where Alexander the Great is from. A man from Macedonia saying, come over and help us. Now, I find this interesting. They've come a long way on this trip. They're over halfway through the physical journey they're going to be on, and they've had no trouble. And then they go over to Macedonia, and all, all they have is trouble. Trouble, trouble, trouble. Well, it's not quite true. First, they have great success in this city called Philippi, where they they start out. They meet a lady named Lydia, right? Outside, she's a seller of purple cloth. They, They begin a church in her home. The only problem is that whenever Paul goes out in the street of the city, there's this girl that shows up and starts to scream at him. And she says, you're the prophet of the holy God. And everywhere he goes, you're the prophet of the holy God. And he knows, he has to know, she's demon-possessed. She can tell the future. She's a slave who makes money as a fortune teller for her slave owners telling the future. She's chasing Paul to annoy him. Now, my question from like the story perspective is why? What does she get out of pointing out that Paul is from God? Hmm? What she got was Paul angry. That's what she got. So that I'm not convinced this was like Paul making a good decision with his superpower when he cast the demon out from her because she's not a Christian. She's not asking for it. And he's just frustrated that she won't stay out of his way. 
Up to that point, they've had no trouble. Suddenly, Paul's going to run into trouble everywhere he goes. And I guess the, the thing I would take from this is, be careful before you poke the demon in the eye. Know what you're doing when you're going to fight. And again, it's much better to begin fighting from your altar with a psalm than out on the streets trying to argue with a witch doctor. See the difference there, yeah? But that's what happens. It leads to all this hubbub. They end up in jail. They end up scourged. But you remember Peter was in jail? Remember this? He's stuck there between the guards. What's he doing? Praying. What are they doing? Praying. What happens? All their chains fall off. They didn't tell you about those other guards who were guarding Peter. You know what happened to them the next day? They got it. That's the rules. So when this Philippian jailer sees that the gates have been thrown open, he's going to do it himself. He's not going to wait. But Paul stops him. Paul finds him. They were all here. And that night, it's just like Cornelius' house with Peter. Look at that. Whole household baptized. Yeah, whole household baptized. And um, they are going to be sent on their way quietly in the morning, but Paul will have none of it. I love this about Paul. He doesn't care if it's going to be more trouble. He's going to use all his tools to get one more chance to tell you about Jesus. And so since they're going to send him away quietly, he says, no, you're going to make those leaders come to me because I'm a citizen of Rome and what you just did was illegal. I could sue you. I couldn't take your guys' houses and your money if I wanted to because you didn't even ask. Huh? And in fact, they get scared. The leadership of the city shows up. They walk him out personally. Just don't come back. But, but you're okay. We're sorry. Just, just don't come back. So remember, they've met Lydia. They've planted a church. He's got Luke, himself, and Barnabas. Excuse me, Luke, Timothy, Silas, and himself. He and Silas leave. Luke stays. Why? Because the church still needs a teacher. Again, so like, Paul, didn't we need you longer? Why did you do that? I mean, that, I think that's our lesson to learn a little bit here. And then see how God leaves a teacher behind and he sends the apostle on to the next town where it all happens kind of all over again. Yeah. Eventually, Paul ends up all by himself in Athens, because everywhere else he's gone, he's basically chased out of. They don't mind if some of the others stick around and talk about Jesus, just not Paul. <laughs> so he ends up in Athens. I mentioned this earlier. He wanders his way up to this great rock called the Areopagus that stands beside one of the, the great temples that's still there. I've stood on this rock. It is. It's a really big rock. And it's where the wise men of the city, the elites, the, the people who don't have to be in the field, um, are there to talk about the the latest stuff, whatever's interesting, no, the fanciest ideas we can come up with. Way back in the day, it was a place of discourse, rhetoric, and law. That is, the way Athens became what Athens was started there. But by the time Paul's there, this is the circus. This is entertainment for the rich people. And it turns out that way because he tells them, Jesus has risen from the dead. And they say, you're drunk. You're crazy. There's a few who listen, but he's laughed out of Athens by and large as well. <clears throat> From there, he journeys to Corinth. So if you look at Greece, Athens is up here, Corinth is down here, and there's this big kind of like, it's like a peninsula where you, you have a very small connection point to Corinth, and it hangs out in the waters. It's a, um, it's a port city again, and unlike everywhere else he's ever been, this place is filthy, not ever been, but the other cities he's gone to, this place is filthy. All right, Pirates of the Caribbean, you know, Barbados, if you can think of that. It, it, is, it is where the pirates of this era went and did their mercant 
merchant stuff, right? They're not pirates with eye patches and swords necessarily. They're thieves who travel on the water. Huh? And Corinth, as a merchant city of all things, was a haven of this kind of behavior, which wouldn't you know, everywhere else, no one will listen to Paul. Guess who wants Paul to preach more? These sick and twisted people in Corinth. They just can't get enough of it. Yeah. Now, of course, the synagogue doesn't want much of it, but the people outside the synagogue do. There's one nice story about a man named Crispus, a leader of the synagogue who does convert. Yeah. But Paul, having done all of this, still is a Jew. This is really interesting. Why does he go home? He wants to be there for one of the festivals. I don't know which festival it is. You know, like Pentecost, though. He wants to get back for the festival in Jerusalem. So he does that, chapter 18, um, and then heads up to Antioch. Where, in the meantime, you got stories about Apollo, so we're going to skip that. I mentioned him earlier and try to get to uh, uh, the third journey, right? Which, one second here, I want to make sure I see my map. It's not going to give it to me. I went past it already. There's a map. There it is. The third journey, um, this one really is twofold. Uh, He wants to go back and see all those he's talked to, like Corinth, which it was great. He was there for years. He made tents. He met Aquila and Priscilla. They planted the church and had a great life together. And then he goes home for this big festival time, right? He wants to go back and see how they're doing. And we have our two letters in the Bible about Corinth. We'll get to that sometime this year because of how bad they're doing. (laughs) They're not doing well. He needs to get back there. But he also has this desire to go to Rome someday. He's not sure if he's going to be able to do that. Uh, But he, he then goes... To follow all these places, he ends up in Galatia one more time. He ends up in Ephesus. He ends up in Corinth and then comes back to Jerusalem. And that's where the story kind of turns toward its conclusion, right? So you've had this big bulk of Peter's journeys in the middle. You've had him doing things like Peter that are things like Jesus. So there's a picture of Jesus' life being echoed forward in the church, right? And now he goes back to Jerusalem again, just like he did before, a couple years later. And this time it doesn't go so well. In fact, on the way, he stops, not in Ephesus, but nearby. The Ephesian elders come to meet him. They want him to come back where where they are. He says, no, I'm going to Jerusalem. One of them takes off his belt. He wraps it around his hands and his feet. He says, this is what they're going to do to you down there. And it's acknowledged by the text that he was prophesying. That is what they did to him down there. He shaves his head for a vow. He goes into the temple. There's a riot. Uh, They're waiting for him. His enemies know he's there. They want him dead. It's planned. Uh, Does that sound familiar, though, again? Yeah, stirring up the crowds, getting the Roman guard involved. But here's again where I love the brass of St. Paul. This is one of my absolute favorite moments in scripture. He's got an entire mob of his own people, bloodthirsty, calling for him. A Roman guard comes into the temple courts out of their, you know, their, their, um, their guardhouse that's built on the side because they know this is a place where riots happen. They surround him. Can you imagine like, like riot gear and everything? They get around him. They put the shields up. He's lifted up. They all walk out together. They sit him down. Here's the, you know, the, the guard in charge. What's going on here? What's that? And Paul says, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. Can I talk to that crowd, please? You just stand here and let me talk. Now, I don't know your experience with fear of speaking and fear of crowds in general, right? But like, I do it a lot. And that is nuts, what he just did. That takes a certain kind of confidence that only someone who knows he can't die can have. So he uses the opportunity to talk to the crowd. It doesn't get any better. He will end up being in prison for a very long time now. 
Uh, first, he will be taken to a guy named Felix, who is the current governor. And Felix kind of you know, listens a little bit. He realizes Paul doesn't deserve to be put to death the way that his enemies want him to be. But he's also, uh, he's an expedient politician. And money talks. Money talks. So he just, he just waits. He just waits. And eventually, as often happens with Roman proconsuls, you know, they move on after a few years. A guy named Festus comes in. And Festus is kind of interested in like cleaning the plates a little bit. Let's get some of this stuff done. So he brings in Paul to hear him. And Paul, uh, before he, uh, he really answers any specific questions, says to Festus, you know, it's been two years. I'm sitting here under house arrest. It's fine. People come visit me and do for the church. But look, if you want me, do you want to go back to Jerusalem where they want to? Right. Um, he says, no. Citizen, if I have to go on trial, I appeal to Caesar, which not everybody could do, but he could. And if you're a Roman citizen and you appeal to Caesar anywhere in the empire, you get a trial before Caesar. Put his hand in the air. Now, following that, Felix has some guests, Herod Agrippa and his wife, Bernice. Uh, they are local royalty. Think British royalty, you know, not powerless, but not powerful. Um, and uh, uh, because uh, they are Jewish by heritage, even though he's more of an Idumean than a Jew, um, they know the history and the scriptures. And Festus says, hey, you know some of this stuff. I've got this guy. I've got to send him to Caesar who kills people he doesn't like, by the way. So I'm going to write a really nice letter and hopefully it all makes sense and I don't get in trouble just for writing the letter. Will you help me? Yeah, I'll do that. Bernice and I will listen. So they get this private audience moment with Agrippa and Bernice and Festus. And, and Paul takes that moment, just like with that crowd, right? Here I am making my defense for getting out of jail in front of Caesar, but that guy kind of knows Judaism. How about I convert that guy? That's what I'm going to do. The whole whole court trial is him trying to convert Agrippa. He is interrupted at last by Festus, who says, you're going crazy, Paul. How can you say such things? And Agrippa says, Paul, do you think in just a day you're going to convince me of this? But the idea is, yeah, Paul does think that. Um, From here, uh, they do send him off to Caesar. I mean, Agrippa acknowledges uh, that there's nothing to put him to death for, so they could have let him go, which is nice, but he'd already appealed to Caesar. So so off they go to Caesar. Um, watching our time, I know we're over, but we're very close here as well. Um, he ends up on a boat with another centurion guarding him. Okay? Now, what's kind of cool about this, I'm just going to say this right now, it's all the way through the end. Everywhere Paul goes the rest of his life, he has a personal bodyguard of one to five soldiers. Given that there are marks on his head and many people who would like to murder him, even though it's called house arrest, when the government pays for your personal bodyguard, it's kind of sweet. Yeah? I mean, everywhere he goes, he's just got these five guys that will kill to keep him alive. Hey, yeah. so he's on a boat with that now. Now, granted, if the boat sinks, they often kill the prisoners. When the boat does sink, they don't kill the prisoners because Paul's been talking to this centurion. And guess what? He's telling him about Jesus. So the guy doesn't want to kill the slaves. Paul also has a dream. Uh, as, not slaves, prisoners. Paul also has a dream, which he tells them on the ship how to follow this so that they live through it. They do. They crash. They crash on an island called Malta, and everyone lives through it. Now, once they're on shore, the people of Malta find them. These, you know, they're coming out of the sea, and they get them into the town and around a fire to warm up. 
And at that point, something else happens. I mean, he's been in chains in a storm, in a shipwreck, on the beach, and now he gets bit by a poisonous snake beside the fire. And everybody absolutely freaks out. Paul's going to die. That guy's going to die. We've seen this snake before. It doesn't take long. It's gross to watch. You know, and it didn't happen. He just took the snake, he threw it in the fire. Now, I want to back off that story again one more time and talk about a violent whirlwind of a storm over a sea that seems like it's going to overwhelm you, where the snake is going to bite you, but in fact, nothing happens. You throw the snake into the fire. That's Jesus again. That's his life. That's his death. That's his resurrection. And that's you in him now. Now, all of that, uh, spins around they make their way up they finally end up in rome he's in rome for several years again under house arrest with private guards making sure that nobody can kill him until well the book ends uh let me come glance at it before i say it um that's right the book ends where he calls together some of the leading elders who have come to visit him And he has a final sermon. I I put the card over there, but I believe it's chapter 28. I haven't given you in this service a lot of texts to go look up. Last service, I just gave him chunk after chunk to go look up. Um, But here's one. I mean, chapter 28, the end of the book of Acts, Paul's final words. They're not what you'd think. You'd think it'd be something like, and he's risen from the dead and the gospel is good forever. But it's not. It's not, it's a warning. It's a warning. So I encourage you to go find those words. I'm not going to read them to you now. Consider that an assignment for the week. But I will tell you what we know of the history after this, all right? So he, the story ends, he's in jail. He's in jail in Rome. And Rome is paying for people to learn Christianity at his house. Uh, in fact, he rents out a hall called the Hall of Tyrannus and starts a school. Uh, it's kind of cool. Ah, oh, that might be Ephesus though. In any case, he's teaching for two years. Um, people are coming to him. He eventually, tradition says, will get his time before Caesar, uh, Claudius, I think, um, who will absolve him. One of the little known facts is the Caesars don't like the Jews. The reason Paul meets Ananias and Sapphira in Corinth, even though they're Roman citizens from Rome, is because Claudius has just kicked all the Jews out of Rome for being Jews and said, if you're here, we're going to persecute you. We hate you. Go away. So now, you know, a couple years later, here's Paul. These people, the Jews, say this about me. How do you think the judge is going to feel about the plaintiff at the moment? Huh? He likes the defense guy a lot more. They're arguing about their religion again? God, they burned our city last time. So, um, so Paul gets let off. He gets let off. What happens next? Uh, history says, tradition says, uh, he goes west. He goes to Spain. He writes about wanting to do this at other places, but he goes west. Um, And then, you know, plants churches. Eventually, he will be arrested again under a different Caesar. This guy's name is Nero. You've probably heard of Nero. Nero went a little loopy. And then he started killing people and burning stuff. Um, Nero will have Paul killed. We'll have him uh, uh, have his head cut off, I believe. Ah, I always get it right. Someone told me two weeks ago what it was. I've lost it. He is murdered on the spot where the Vatican is built, where Peter also was murdered, right? Upside down and crucified. That's in the tradition phase of things, right? That's what happens next. More important than what happens next to Paul, though, is like, if you look at, if you're at the back page of Acts at any point, like, what's the next thing that happens in the book? It's the book of Romans. Where was Paul? 
in Rome? Doing what? Teaching Romans? What do you think? <laughs> Maybe the book yeah, written to their name, at least. Yeah. So the, the real thing that happens next is that the word, which has done this in these people's lives, is not bound in many other people's lives. So then for you today, what you take from this is that this word is that Holy Spirit, that light of God in your midst. And it will not be bound in your life by anyone except, except you. You can tie that knot off and walk away. But when you, when you see that light shining through, right, you don't really want to let go of it. You want more. You want more of this God who says, I love you no matter who you are. I love you because I made you. I love you because you're mine. And so much so that even though you made and you mine made yourself someone else's and gross, I'm going to put it all back. I already have. Now, he is risen. He is risen. Hallelujah.